Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at the future of our forest industry as layoffs and closures continue to decimate BC communities. Plus, a cold spell heads to Metro Vancouver as temperatures dip 5 to 10 degrees below normal this weekend. What in the name of Alberta is going on? Plus, as the government kicks the can down the road on Surrey's police transition, we look at how politics and the law are driving the decision. And from Bruce Boudreau to the struggling tech sector, our rap panel discusses why companies are so bad at letting people go. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Last 24 hours or so, more than 100 workers in Port Alberni were laid off at the Western Forest Products Sawmill. Uh, they're the latest group of people dealing with the repercussions of a struggling forest industry. Now, their particular mill had been closed for uh, six months as uh, its parent company was waiting for the market to improve. The market clearly hasn't at this point. Now, Western Forest Products say they'll work with the United Steel Workers to find a viable solution for the operation. So, fingers crossed. Hopefully, there's some good news there, but certainly not. Uh, the news that we, uh, I think the workers wanted to hear the last 24 hours or so. Now, that conversation on the island um, follows uh, Canfor announcing that it's permanently shutting down its sawmill and pellet plant in Chetwin, which impacts about 157 people. And of course, Canfor, Canfor also had announced earlier than that that its Prince George pipeline uh, would be shutting down as well, leading to the loss of about 300 jobs there. Now, we have to remind ourselves that forestry pumps millions of dollars into provincial coffers and employs people uh, in many small communities around British Columbia, including the suburbs of Vancouver and right here in downtown Vancouver. So what's causing this uh, huge structural challenge for the forest industry? Well, joining us now to talk about it is Jeff Bromley. He is the Wood Council Chairperson for the United Steelworkers. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no problem, Jeff. Walk me through, what it, why is this happening now? Well, <clears throat> now I... I mean, it, it depends on what part of the province. I mean, our APD mill, Western Forest Products on Port Alberni, has had its challenges, and, and there's been layoffs up and down there in terms of uh, that situation. It's a, it's a, I think it would be a lot different to characterize what's going on in the northern interior of BC, and specifically in this case, mm-hmm. in north, the northern interior up in Houston and Chetwind and other areas. So let's talk about the interior then, uh, in the Prince George area, the Chetwind area. What's What are the challenges there? Uh, fiber supply. I mean... The, we, we've come through the last 25 years of, of trying to uh, fight the mountain pine beetle epidemic uh, that was plaguing BC's forests. We've uh, uh, obviously that has now. No, come, I wouldn't want. I don't want to say come to a conclusion, but it's certainly uh, not evident anymore. But the regeneration of those trees, those areas have been replanted, but that obviously takes decades and decades uh, before uh, a harvest can re- regenerate itself. Right. So mm-hmm. that's the uh, that's it in a nutshell. It's, it's probably mostly uh, fiber supply. So is that the government uh, problem? Is this government caused, or is this about uh, having to deal with some of the um, more trickier uh, conversations in and around? Uh, uh, First Nations rights as well. How do you get through this incredibly difficult time? Because, you know, mills have shut down in the past, but if you look at the last five years, which you know very well, there's been significant challenges for this industry. And some would argue this government, even past governments, including BC Liberals, didn't make the tough structural changes that needed to provide, as you say, more fiber and at the very least give it the industry, give the industry an opportunity to thrive once again. What in your mind needs to happen moving forward? Uh, and that's a that's a long, long answer um, <laughs> in terms of how much time she might have. But uh, all jokes aside, I, I mean, we can point fingers at this government. We can point fingers at past governments in terms of forest policy. And I'll be honest with you, we didn't agree with a lot of them on both sides of the, the mm-hmm. political spectrum. Um, and we know that in terms of trying to react to the mountain pine beetle uh, epidemic, both in the 90s and in the early 2000s, was to have that capacity, mills like the Houston, Canfor Houston mill, and to and obviously the Chetwin mill has been a, is a little older, but to try and deal with that fiber, to try and control the spread of 
of the beetle. Now that that's done, though, the, the fiber just isn't there. So in terms of pol- different policies, yeah, I can argue that I think it might have been a different animal if we still had things like a pertency back in the 90s where that the fiber supply was, t- was tied to an operation in the area, so you just couldn't close mills, mm-hmm. and you, you couldn't do it as... I don't want to say it's easy because these aren't easy operations. These aren't easy decisions yeah. for anybody. Company or, I mean, these are real families and, and real communities that are impacted. But it just seemed it was a lot, it's a lot easier to make these decisions today than it was back in the day when you had, there was a, there was a consequence to it other than the, the job loss. But there was, there was a potential, potential fiber loss. So a company would lose their access to fiber if they did close down a mill. And that doesn't happen anymore. They can just truck it longer distances. Uh, do you think the government's comfortable with these mills shutting down? That, and what I mean by that is nobody wants to see job losses. But do you view, do you think the industry is still viewed as a sunset industry? I don't, obviously, but I'm biased. Yeah. Uh, I'm, but I'm do, you, do you believe those in positions of power is what I mean? P- people who, you know, whether it's Victoria, whether it's even at the corporate level, to a certain degree, view the industry as a sunset industry. I, I believe that's accurate. I, th- I think that there isn't enough to be doing to ensure the success of the industry. And I think we can always do more in an- many aspects. I think that not only do we have... Um, physical aspects like the mountain pine beetle that we've dealt with. We have, and, and t- timber supply, that's a real thing. We understand that. And getting more value out of the, out of the, uh, out of the forest, yeah, that's always we do that. Yeah. Um, but how do we do that? It's not just as easy as saying, let's build a value-added mill for a product that may not be in demand. It's just not as easy as just saying that. We want to get more value out of it. There's a, there's a ways and a means to do it, and that involves the public. It involves the industry. It involves, obviously, government. And I, I think that too many times there's a bit of a soundbite there saying we want more value, we want more value, but it's not as, just as easy. We, our forest provides great value. And they provide, I think, $1.5 billion to the GDP last year. So they, they do a good job of providing value. To get more of it, it's not just an easy, easy answer. And so I think that more conversations have to be taking place. But that's not the only obstacles that are in place. We have a, a very a different attitude in terms of uh, forest management, in terms of, uh, um, I'll say it, the old growth uh, report and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, an, there's an intense disagreement between industry, our union, our members, and government and the ENGOs, for lack of a better word, environmental organizations, and mm-hmm. their approach to protection of old growth and how, what the impact of the fiber supply that's going to do. Yeah. Jeff, thank you for your time. We don't have, uh, don't have enough time today, but I look forward to having you on hopefully in the next couple of weeks to chat a little bit more on this issue. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Anytime, Jess. Take care. By now, you've probably heard of the cold snap arriving tonight in Metro Vancouver as well. Uh, The city of Vancouver today announced that they'll be opening extra warming centres to help those who are unhoused uh, to escape the winter blast. Joining me now to discuss the bitterly cold weekend to come is uh, Global BC Senior Meteorologist Christy Gordon. Christy, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Jeff. Uh, I thought winter was over. (laughs) We still have almost two months left of winter, don't we? <laughs> we do, but I actually had put my winter jacket away about 10 days ago, and I'm an optimist, and now I'm regretting it, obviously, because this weekend looks like it's going to be a bit of a doozy. Yeah, you know, um, we're certainly advertising cold across the region because temperatures will drop. We've been very mild, as you well know, thus putting away your jacket. Certainly that's been the case in through the interior regions as well. They've been a good five degrees above seasonal for many weeks now. Although this uh, drop in temperature that we're going to see is nowhere near what we have experienced in the past, it's the fact that we are going to see this transition and everyone has been, like you, been putting away their jackets. Uh, and what kind of temperature? What kind of pe- temperature drops are we expecting? Well, so to give you perspective, for the south coast area, we'll see overnight lows range from about minus five to minus seven. Daytime highs will reach maybe zero or one degree. So that's certainly cold for this time of year. Um, typical for this month uh, or for this time of year is actually a high of about six or seven. So that's a good five to six degrees below seasonal. Um, But I thought I would give you an interesting little perspective. Um, Do you remember the week leading up to Christmas? Mm -hmm. It was exceptionally cold. We had four days of an Arctic um, outbreak. And what we saw were daytime highs reach only minus seven. 
So during the day, it was minus 7. So this drop in temperature that we're going to see, particularly Sunday and Monday, won't be nearly as bad. We'll see daytime highs reach zero degrees and overnight lows will be down to minus seven. Nonetheless, of course, it's really important to make sure everyone is aware uh, because we have a number of people that may be vulnerable to the cold. Mm -hmm. Uh, Should we expect snow? (laughs) Uh, Very good question. It's always the next one after the cold. So we are going to see some moisture push in on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So we've got sunshine on the way Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Tuesday is when we're expecting some moisture to push in. And during that transition, we always have the possibility of snow. We're still so many days away, so we don't really know how we're going to be in terms of temperature, when the moisture will push in. Will the Arctic air really be entrenched still at that time? So that will be something that we will have to refine as we get closer. But what we really need everyone to know is that they should tune in on Monday for details about Tuesday because we'll have a much better idea at that time. It has and it's, this is a hard question to answer, but it, it, has this winter so far been any different? Uh, more, uh, you know, more colder, more snow than other winters, or is this just your typical Canadian winter here in the, in the Lower Mainland? It just seems to me we've had a couple of a uh, couple of uh, yeah. you know pretty big snowfalls, which have, have impacted people probably more in regards to getting home and and long commutes and that sort of thing. But has this winter mm-hmm. been any cooler in regards to just uh, temperatures or more snow? Well, when we look at the month of December, for example, the entire province was below seasonal in terms of temperature. It was much cooler than normal, and that was partly because of that incredible Arctic outblast, which was felt right across the province. At that time when we had that Arctic outbreak, um, we actually had extreme cold warnings, even in Metro Vancouver. I can't remember the last time we had an extreme cold warning, whereas Right now, what we'll be contending with is more just a special weather statement. Heads up, we're going to be below seasonal. In terms of snowfall as well, we had that substantial snow uh, through the month of December. Um, But in terms of precipitation for the month of December, we were sort of in near average, but we had significant snow for a brief period. And then we headed into January. And um, as you well know, because you put away your jacket, we've been very, very mild. We had a number of atmospheric rivers in those first uh, sort of first week that allowed those temperatures to soar. We saw significant snow melts in the mountains, especially the local mountains. And we it was rainy. It was more like what you would see, say, for example, in you know March or April with a sort of mild and wet weather. So we've gone through a significant swing from really cold through December to mild in, in January. And now it looks like we're going to sort of drop in temperature once again. So swings in, in conditions are, 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 are definitely possible and typical for, for any kind of season, really. But it has been interesting how much, how, the, how large the swing has been from very, very cold to very, very mild and now back to cold again. Uh, stepping back, my final question to you, we are also heading into a sort of a, a La Nina cycle, are we not, over the next two or three years where we should expect broadly speaking, warmer temperatures, probably especially in the summertime, but we're heading over the next two or three years into a La La Nina cycle, are we not? You mean El Nino? El Nino, currently Yes. Yeah, no problem. We are currently in La Nina, which is the colder phase of the Enzo Oscillation, which um, has a great impact on our weather across Western Canada region. So we've had um, over two years of La Nina. We are currently now headed into an uh, Enzo Neutral stage, but it is very um, unlikely that we would return into La Nina once again because of the fact that we've had a number of years of that. Um, so it's more likely that as we um, continue through Enzo neutral, we will head into El Nino, which is, yes, um, our, the warm phase of this, of this pattern. So um, there is potential as we head into the summer months and particularly as we head into 2024, the winter, um, that we could see significant impact in terms of that warmth, um, whether it be um, less snow, whether it be extreme temperatures, we don't know at this time, but there is um, a greater chance that we're going to certainly see above 
average conditions as we head into late 2023 into 2024. Yeah, I mean, it, to, to think that we're in a more of a, a, a cooler period and we've had extreme temperatures in, in the summer times and now into a more of a warmer trough, as, as you were saying, El Nino, we could have bigger challenges when it comes to extreme temperatures. So uh, lots, to, yeah. lots to watch, that's for sure. Uh, Christy, thank you so mm-hmm. much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thanks. Happy Friday to you, Jazz. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Yesterday, BC's Solicitor General said he needed more information before he decided on whether the RCM, whether he would choose the RCMP or the Surrey Police Service uh, in regards to who will provide law enforcement in Surrey. Uh, many people were expecting a decision from Mike Farnworth, but uh, he says, uh, look, he needs more information, certainly a lot of information provided by the city of Surrey, but also lots of information provided by uh, the Surrey Police Service. In some ways, you could say it's dueling information, lots of facts and figures. Uh, When uh, Minister Farnworth was asked in regards to how long um, it would take before he actually comes down with the decision, take a listen. Well, I would uh, like to see it done as expeditiously as possibly as possible, but also it needs to be thorough. Uh, my ministry will be cooperating with all the parties involved to ensure that that takes place. What we need is to have a decision or to have the information uh, that ensures that we have safe, effective, adequate policing, not only in Surrey, but the region and the province. And as I said, I want that work to be done expeditiously, but thoroughly. And uh, I have every confidence in the staff in my ministry who have worked extremely hard on this and will be cooperating uh, with, the, uh, with the, uh, the parties, both in terms of Surrey and the RCMP. So the minister will be speaking to the city of Surrey, getting more information, Surrey Police Service as well. Uh, in many cases, all of this, uh, uh, this jurisdiction itself, comes under the Police Act. Uh, and we will, be, we will be speaking to Ravi Hira. Uh, he is a former Crown Prosecutor in regards to the Police Act at 5 o'clock. In regards to what does the law say? But it's not just the law, it's also the politics as well. Now, Brenda Locke yesterday, the mayor of Surrey, says that under the Police Act, that she, uh, she certainly believes it is the decision of Surrey is to go with whether they prefer the RCMP or, not, or the Surrey Police Service. The question Mike Farnler should be asking himself is uh, if both entities can provide the uh, adequate policing, then it should be up to the city to decide if they want the RCMP or the Surrey Police Service. Take a listen to her answer. The Police Act is very clear. It does say that it is the role of uh, municipalities of more than 5,000 persons to provide law enforcement in their cities, and that is the role of the municipality. That is what we're doing, and that is the decision that we made. But on the other hand, Minister has his uh, responsibility, and so what I am deriving from the information or the letter that we got from his deputy is that they want to make sure that those numbers are going to be uh, maintained throughout the rest of the province as well. That was uh, Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke on this program uh, yesterday. Well, joining us now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter, who's been following the politics uh, of of this uh, interesting story that hasn't ended. Richard, thank you for joining us. The never-ending saga of policing in Surrey, John. <laughs> it, it's, it's the days of our lives, of, lives, as I was saying to Chris Kalis not too long ago. It doesn't go away. Your thoughts on all this? I mean, uh, many people thought, look, there's, we've talked enough about this, lots of information that has been provided to the minister and, and to uh, the, the deputy, his deputy and the ministry itself. What is going on behind the scenes? What are you hearing? 
Yeah, so clearly there was an underestimation here from Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, especially when it came to making that initial decision back when Doug McCallum swept to power uh, in Surrey and the decision was made at that point to move to the Surrey Police Service. The province went along with that and now undoing that is becoming a lot more complicated than I think anyone in the public safety office believed. And and you spoke about the act that defines all of this uh, and the requirements the minister has to ensure public safety remains. But the act has never been applied in quite a way as it's happening now. And what we are hearing behind the scenes is there is a tremendous political push from some members of the NDP caucus to stay with the move towards Surrey police. While there are others who are hearing from their constituents that there is a desire to move uh, to the continuation of the RCMP. And complicating all of this, you have Ginny Sims, who ran for mayor, under the promise of doing a more thorough assessment about the future of this, and even a consideration at one point of asking the public through a referendum what they think. We are far beyond the capability of doing that, but this is leading to a pretty big headache, Jazz, which could eventually lead to some political challenges for the NDP in Surrey. In in an argument that they largely, and you heard this from Minister Mike Farnworth yesterday, they just want to stay out of this. Yeah. You heard every question I asked Mike Farnworth. His answer was, this is up to Surrey. This is up to Surrey. The problem now is, if it's up to Surrey, then why not just let them stay with the RCMP, which is what the current mayor, Brenda Locking Council, wants to do. This is where there's two edges of that sword, and Farnworth is left clutching this double-fisted, double-sided sword, which doesn't feel very good on the hands. <laughs> well, part, part of it is just the, everybody talks about the sunk costs. Uh, some have said $200 million, uh, Others have yeah. said less. There's also, of course, the issue of all these officers that have been uh, yeah. hired. Uh, the severance, what does that look like? I mean, give me a break. They're not all going to join the RCMP, and it's not going to cost any money. Of course it is. And if he does make that decision, if Mike Farmer decides to go with the Surrey Police Service, there is, of course, the other comment that Brent the lock has made that there's a $1,200 per household property tax increase coming if the, the minister decides to go forward with that. $7,700 for um, individual businesses. In fact, that question was posed to Minister Farnworth. He's a minister of the crown and they're already talking about property taxes. And then one of the questions, I don't know if you asked or somebody asked, else asked was, is he willing to face the consequences of property ta- uh, tax increases based on his decision? Take a listen. My responsibility is to ensure that whatever decision Surrey wants to make, that it will ensure that there is safe and adequate and effective policing in the city of Surrey. This is a Surrey decision. The Surrey made the decision to move to a municipal police force. Surrey is making a decision to move back from a, to, to the RCMP. Uh, my role as minister is to ensure that there is a proper uh, and safe plan to do that. And that means ensuring safe and adequate and effective policing, uh, not just in Surrey, but in the region and the province. Uh, how much of this, uh, Richard? I mean, there has to be, I'm, I'm going to guess, political calculation looking at the next provincial election going well if we allow them to or we allow SPS to remain the new force what are the political implications when it comes to the next provincial election that has to be somewhere in the back of the mind of Mike Farnworth in part but they they're in such a tough spot here jazz because you then if you decide politically that it is better to stay with this move towards the Surrey Police Service. You are sending a message to mayors that it doesn't really matter what they want and you are going to do what you want, and that could be highly problematic. You hit on the staffing issue. Some costs are one thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think the city of Surrey is willing to try to figure out how to eat some of those sunk costs. The bigger issue is this challenge with staffing. And this is what the minister has gone back to Surrey with, and said, you need to provide more details on this. I spoke to Brenda Locke today for an interview for Focus BC that, that aired on BC One a little bit earlier this afternoon. And one of the things she said is she has guarantees from Brenda Lucky, the commissioner of the RCMP, that the resources that Surrey needs will be there. 
But the larger issue here is each one of these numbers is a human being making a choice. Like you said, they're not all going to go back to the RCMP that, that were at one point employed by the RCMP. You have Vancouver police in the midst of a hiring spree wanting to hire additional a hundred additional officers, if not a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, they may be in the market here to hire some of these officers that are trying to make this decision. Farnworth has told Brenda Locke in private conversations and publicly as well that the RC, the Surrey is not allowed to take RCMP officers from other RCMP detachments in British Columbia. So if they were thinking about borrowing two from Prince George and a few from Williams Lake and convincing these officers to move to Surrey. They're not allowed to do that. So all of this is stacking the deck against staying with the RCMP because finding these staff, all these staff members will be impossible in a marketplace that we know is challenging for staff everywhere. Wow. So <laughs> it's, it's, there, there are huge complications here. And I think inevitably, we may have a time, Jess, where the Surrey Police Service is taking a bigger, bigger role in the community, and then we shift back towards the RCMP as, as Depot, as Ottawa, can start getting more officers uh, on the ground here. The RCMP needs Surrey. It is a massively important force for them. Mm-hmm. How they make that happen, I just don't know. <laughs> the sands through an hourglass. These are the days of our lives, or at least the policing lives. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Our guest is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. And uh, like you, he has been following this story very, very closely. Uh, Richard, I've got to ask you, um, how much of this blame, all of this, sits at the feet of uh, Doug McCallum, the former mayor, and how we handled all Uh, all of it in regards to building transparency, openness, and bringing the public along in regards to this journey for all residents of Surrey. There is a cost to that transition, not only in hiring people, but what they will be paying in their property taxes. I mean, it seems like the original sin, the original problem was that Mr. McCallum and his administration did not work in an open manner uh, in regards to providing information, financial data, and just being open to criticism as well as an elected official, moving moving this whole file along. Yeah, I think the blame is largely at his feet. The challenge here, though, is he's no longer in office. He lost an election. Mm-hmm. Although Brenda Locke insists the election was about this issue, the election was not about this issue. The election was about... Doug McCallum, and do you trust him considering at the time he was facing a charge that he's now been cleared of of public mischief? Uh, But he should have been more transparent. There was very little information provided uh, to the public around the issues associated with moving police forces and especially moving staff. But you can blame him as much as you want. It's not his challenge to fix. I think the issue here the province is running into is there what Minister Farmer should be saying is the council wants to move towards the Surrey RCMP. We are going to do everything possible to help them get there. But he's not saying that because he's getting pushed back from inside of caucus, because he knows there is a huge part of the population in Surrey who supports a Surrey police service. I think it's a split community between wanting the RCMP and wanting the Surrey police service. And the, the provincial government is trying to stand in the middle here somewhere, and that's a very tough balancing act. The, mm-hmm. the message should be, we will help you in Surrey stay with the RCMP, but you won't hear Minister Farnworth say that. Yeah. And I think that's where the blame is, is going to, to lie ultimately, is the province's inability to express that. And frustration, you know, I spoke to Brenda Locke today, I mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things she said as well is, is the minister did not call her until after this this press release went out. He did not have a dialogue with the mayor about it. And part of that uh, will lead to some real strain in that relationship, especially as push comes to shove around this property tax issue. Let's go to the open line. Uh, let's go to Shannon in Langley. Hi, Shannon. Good afternoon. Going back to when uh, Doug McCallum was mayor the last time, no one's brought up the fact that his charge and his discussion with Fraser McRae is probably what was the, the starting point of him wanting to get rid of the RCMP. 
And then Brenda Locke voting blindly behind Doug McCallum on Inauguration Day to get rid of the RCMP. And now, you know, she's actually done some research, which she should have done in the first place. And now she's gone 180 degrees in the opposite direction. Shannon, thank you for your call. I guess uh, uh, Richard Shannon does bring up a very good issue. I mean, this is all politics. They were in the same party. They've uh, obviously diverged now. Uh, I guess in big decisions like the, the, the core message here, from what I from what I hear is to make this clean and transparent, they should have always had gone to either a plebiscite or a referendum and ask a clear, concise question of citizens. And that allows you, wherever way, which way you go, if they say yes, you open up the process and then you move along rather than thinking one election victory somehow means yeah. you, ha- you can go carte blanche and go in the direction you need to go. And that one election victory piece is huge, right? Because yeah. you can make promises on an election trail that, sure, can be tested by opponents or journalists. But they aren't tested by, you know, the ability of city staff to execute these things. And this promise was made, and Doug McCallum was insistent on keeping it, no matter what the long-term ramifications would be. And I think that's ultimately what it comes down to, is these things are not – we need to figure out a better way, maybe in election cycles, which are very short in this country – to test these promises so that the public can have a better understanding, or at least once – somebody comes into office, they work with their city staff rather than, uh, you know, plowing it through council to actually have an evaluation of what this looks like in the long-term ramifications for a community. Yeah, and it's definitely a masterclass on how not to move a major file that will have repercussions for a very, very long time. Richard, thanks for your time. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Josh. Have a great weekend. Let's uh, focus a little bit on the Surrey Police Soap Opera. As you know, the uh, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth uh, yesterday said that he needs more time to decide uh, whether or not Surrey should go ahead with the Surrey Police Service or the RCMP. Uh, now, Minister Farnworth uh, obviously has to, so to a certain degree, keep an eye on the political end of things, but he is also governed under the Police Act. Uh, now, the mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, was on this program yesterday, uh, and she maintains that the Police Act says uh, Surrey, as a municipality, can decide what police force they should go with, RCMP or the Surrey Police Service. Take a listen to her comments. The Police Act is very clear. It does say that it is the role of uh, municipalities of more than 5,000 persons to provide law enforcement in their cities, and that is the role of the municipality. That is what we're doing, and that is the decision that we made. But on the other hand, Minister has his uh, responsibility, and so what I am deriving from the information or the letter that we got from his deputy is that they want to make sure that those numbers are going to be uh, maintained throughout the rest of the province as well. That was uh, Mayor Brenda Locke on the program yesterday. So does Minister Farnworth have the ultimate authority uh, in regards to deciding uh, whether it should be a municipal force or an or the RCMP? Or is it a case, as Mayor Locke says, that the, once a municipality has decided in regards to what police force they want, the government just has to decide on whether or not the, the amount of personnel that they're hiring is adequate for appropriate uh, law enforcement. That is it. Then she maintains it's a municipality's decision. Well, our next guest knows the law and he knows the police act as well. Ravi Hira is a former Crown prosecutor. He is now a partner at Hira Rowan LLP. Ravi, thank you for joining us today. Jazz, it's always a privilege to be on your show and it uh, is very much appreciated that you... Uh, Keep up with um, current matters and enlighten British Columbians. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Let's focus on the Solicitor General. Uh, he has asked for more information before he comes down with a final decision in regards to the issue of policing in Surrey. Uh, what must he be looking at beyond wanting more fiscal numbers, financial numbers, so be it? What does the Police Act itself say in regards to his role and what he uh, can or cannot do? Well, here's the framework. One, policing uh, from the uh, 1867 Constitution falls within provincial jurisdiction. Two, the minister is responsible for ensuring an adequate and effective level of policing throughout the province. The minister may establish policing priorities, 
Further, the minister appoints a director of uh, policing who establishes standards for policing throughout the province, including training, use of force, equipment, and uh, things of that nature. So, to be very clear, the minister is the primary person responsible for policing in the province and ensuring that there is adequate and uniform policing and standards in the province. Now, a municipality of over 5,000 people has two choices. One, it can uh, either contract to have the RCMP as its municipal police force, or two, create its own municipal police force. If it uh, chooses option two, that is its own municipal police force, the police force must meet the requisite standards set by the minister and the director of policing for policing. So the minister at the end of the day is the person responsible for ensuring that municipal forces are adequate, meet the standards required, and that policing throughout the province is uniform. In other words, we don't have some areas of the province enforcing some laws and choosing not to enforce others, uh, using some training and not other training, having different standards of the use of force. All of that has to be uniform in British Columbia. So if uh, a municipal leader says, look, we can decide, we should be able to decide whether we have RCMP or a municipal police force, the minister's job is to make sure uh, that uh, that the, there is adequate policing. Uh, does that mean ultimately that the whether or not Surrey goes ahead with SPS or RCMP actually sits in the hands of that municipal council, that municipal body, then uh, instead of the um, the public safety minister or the, can the public minis- safety minister say, look, this is the direction you're we're going or you're going to go based on my belief through advice through advice from public servants that this will be what we're, where we where we can find adequate policing for your community and for the region the ultimate power and responsibility is with the minister he must decide whether what is being proposed by the municipality is adequate policing for the municipality so it matters not if uh, the mayor and council um, want to uh, go in a particular direction. The minister has to decide whether that direction is adequate and proper for the municipality. That seems to be the import of uh, Section 2. Um, Section 2, Section 2.1, and uh, Sections uh, 15 and 17 of the Police Act. Just to mention a few. So in, you, you've given me the law here, and uh, in these decisions, because it is municipal and provincial, and it has been a football that's been tossed around for so long, politics will play a role. Can the minister just say, look, there's going to be adequate policing, uh, whether it's RCMP or, or or a municipal police force. I just want a decision from you, the city councilor, which direction you're going to go in. Could that be at least an option for the minister? if he decides not to wade in into the political minefield uh, that this appears to be at the local level? Well, the minister has to make the decision whether there's adequate policing. If the minister decides that a municipal force, as proposed, um, is adequate and the RCMP is adequate, uh, and in other words, they both meet the standard, I suppose the minister can say all right, mayor and council, please choose which one you want uh, and uh, then rubber stamp that decision. But he can only do that if, in his opinion, uh, both the municipal force... uh, Sorry, he can only do that if he's satisfied that the municipal force being proposed is adequate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ravi, thank you for your time. That helps a lot because I think uh, beyond all the politics and all the noise... It's always important to know where the law is 
And uh, in that, of course, will guide uh, the minister and guide the decision from the senior level of government. Appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you, Jazz. Keep it up. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well, we've had another week of opinions, experts, open line wisdom and hot takes. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help us explain the week that was. It's time for the wrap. Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's... This week, we look at uh, Bruce from Bruce Woodrow to tech layoffs. Why are companies so bad when it comes to layoffs and bad service? Quick, somebody call my lawyer. Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. What's Happy happening? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. <laughs> well, let's talk about layoffs for a second. This week, the tech industry um, has been reeling with just nonstop parade of layoffs across Silicon Valley. Amazon cuts uh, has cut uh, 18,000 jobs. Um, uh, Alphabet, the parent uh, company for Google, 12,000. Meta, the parent company for Facebook, 11,000. Uh, and you're hearing all these uh, horror stories of people getting their dismissals via an email sent to their personal address, uh, no one's been talked to. They're just told they've been let go. Of course, all of this has occurred just after the Vancouver Canucks ran a master class on how not to get rid of anybody in regards to their former coach, Boos Boudreau, a man who attended his own funeral in his final days with the Canucks, some would argue. So, Leah, let me, talk, let me go to you first, for, first and foremost. Why are companies so bad, so insensitive when it comes to layoffs? It's tough. I'll admit that. But the insensitivity, I am just absolutely shocked and flabbergasted. Boost Boudreaux is a classic uh, example of that. Well, Why are they so bad? I mean, that was like a slow walk to the electric chair for Bruce Boudreaux. That's what that was. Like, let's be honest. That was awful. That was so bad. And then they tweeted after, too. Like, thank you, Bruce. Totally tone deaf. I don't know. I think, I mean, everybody knows, and this whole city knows. If you've been on Twitter, you see... Um, how angry people are, how angry the fans are. They could have handled that situation five million times better. Um, as for the other companies, I mean, who emails you to fire you? Like, that is like, I don't know. That's the first. I've never had that knock on wood. But I mean, to be fired by email is so insensitive. I guess if you don't go to an office all the time, but what about like teams or, you know what I mean? Why can't they do it? on on um zoom like why are they doing it by email uh, i guess they're really online. really big companies but where does it say don't have a heart just send a quick email uh, and, you're and, just a number to them then, oh right? yeah exactly like, absolutely an email handle <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> sarah what are your what are your thoughts on it? is this these companies are too big and it's oh, hard for them to have any personal touch although I, the vancouver connects we've all worked in radio right come on <laughs> come out Ratings Wasn't come out email. and fall and the spring. So the, the big one is the fall book. Now, for those of you listening at home, this <laughs> like the fall book is a big book. It's it's when yeah. like everybody's back to school, the numbers come out. And you know when radio stations gas everybody? Basically mm-hmm. early December. It's Merry Christmas to you and don't let the door hit you on the rear end on your way out the door. So <laughs> yeah. on radio, this fabulous institution that we're talking on right now is just <laughs> brutal. I mean, if you've ever wondered where your favorite morning show or afternoon drive host went to, it probably was because <laughs> of a bad so, and And when you get fired in radio, as we all know, it's like, you know, all of a sudden like, you're, nothing works anymore and you are unceremoniously shown the door. So it's it's the same in any industry, right? I mean, there's, there's no good way to fire anybody, but let, let's face it, the human resources side of these things could do a lot better job. I mean, there is a way to show empathy. Um, you know, instead of like just basically like shiving somebody and showing them the door, which seems to be the way they didn't even want to shiv you. They didn't even want to yeah. come close to you. They want to <laughs> yeah. email you. Exactly. 
I mean, well, look what Elon Musk was doing. Like, if you're not prepared to sacrifice your life working for Twitter, then you're basically fired. I mean, these are the kind of idiots that are running companies these days. So, that, you know, that, that's part of it. I mean, 7,500 employees at, at uh, Twitter, and he got rid of 5,000 just like that. And even think about it. Meta this week is letting Trump back on Facebook and Instagram, and they dumped oh, 11,000 employees. Yeah. They should be adding 11,000 employees. Oh, my God. Just what the world needs. Donald Trump on Twitter. Jeez. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, Leah, in regards to um, Boudreaux for a moment, I mean, you know, like, like we all know coaches don't have a long shelf life. It's just the nature of professional sports. What I thought was just odd and well, completely disrespectful is they talked about the fact that he, the, Mr. Boudreaux lacks style, structure, or accountability the way he was coaching. And they said this back a while back. And it's just a slow march. Like, there's just no, no just sort of comments saying, oh, it's going to happen or you just do it and you move on. But no, I it's just a slow... That. You know, that was, yeah, like, how do you, how does, I mean, Rutherford, we're talking about Jim, obviously, he's the one Mm -hmm. that was on TV just skewering him months ago and saying he's our coach for now. I mean, how do you do your job properly when that's dangling over you? I, you know, like, I just think that was just management, the Aquilinis, it's just, it was so bad. The fact that we have made news around the world on our firing of our coach tells you how awful that was. Everybody, even old players were like, what? Like, how, how do you fire somebody that way? I get it. If you don't want him anymore, do it quietly and do it not publicly like that. Don't dangle that over him. I think he was a great coach. He had no defense. He had no shot. They knew that. He asked for more defense. Players didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And they blame him. I mean, that's what they do. They blame the coaches. But we're playing three coaches now, right? So laugh on us now. That's the joke, right? Mm-hmm. We're paying them to sit out. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, coming up next, have you ever been compelled to sue for bad service? That's next. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to our Friday rap panel. Leah Halai is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. We are now going to talk a little bit about a legal case. So you have to put on uh, your legal hats. A BC lawyer took a laser tag company to small claims court over a child's birthday party that um, the lawyer alleges did not meet expectations. There were faulty vests at this laser tag, laser tag facility. That was the allegation. Uh, bar, uh, lack of party decorations, poor customer service. They were overcharged for pizza. Anyway, the, the, the case was taken to small claims court and $350 was what was sought. And uh, the, the individual uh, recouped uh, $37.50. Of course, that'll set a precedent. I'm sure legal scholars will be talking about this for decades. Roy Ho is a Vancouver lawyer. Uh, he spoke uh, on Mike Smith's show today in regards to this small claims matter. Uh, take a listen. All the time. Uh, even more um, trivial than this before, too. It's smaller amounts. It's a lot, a lot of the claims that the tribunal deals with. In fact, a lot of them don't even get to a hearing stage. It gets, you know, resorted before then. But even getting to the hearing stage, a lot of them are um, people who are disgruntled and want to be heard. Um, and it, it's for principal reasons. For principal reasons. So, Leah, let me go Whatever. to you. Let me God. go, Leah, let me go to you. Honestly. <laughs> Leah, let me go to you first. Has there ever been a moment where you go, you know what? I want to sue. Well, you can't forget she also was awarded 36 cents in prejudgment interest. So add that. That's almost 38 bucks she got. Like, well worth the whole day off of work, probably. I'm guessing. Thank God she didn't have a lawyer because that would have cost her a heck of a lot more. I just, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I can hear Sarah there grumbling too. I write there. Like I can't, I can't, there's nothing I'm going to sue for like a party, nothing like that, unless it's something egregious, like something really bad. But I mean, the U S is the country of suing. So I could see this happening there. Not here. No. This one kind of blew my mind away. <laughs> Sarah, what about you? Has there ever been a moment? Because I, I can like, actually see you just, if this poor service is poor, you you challenge them. I can actually see no, no, this. No, 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 no. Like, honestly, I'm embarrassed for these people. If, if service is poor or something like that, first of all, I mean, I would never make a, as much as I'm an ass in general. I don't make a scene in a restaurant or anything like that. If, in fact, like, you know, there could be a thousand things that are going on behind the scene at this laser tag place. All you have to do as a reasonable person is go up to the manager or something and say, like, hey, I was under the impression ABC and it's not happening. 
how can we make this work better? As opposed to sitting and stewing, you know, going on social media and not actually trying to deal with the situation at hand. Instead, you have a lawsuit too. Yeah, and (laughs) instead you have to be an asshat and like, you know, drag them to small claims court and all the crap that ensues so you can feel important. I mean, what on earth is wrong with society when you can't solve something in a quiet and dignified manner? That really? Is, that's all we're asking. Like how mad are that's you to do that for 38 bucks? You know? <laughs> I know. I don't get what it. Is, well, it was, it was higher. They, they won $37, but yeah, I think but they were Yeah, but 350 Like, that's not even much. But, you know what I mean? Like, the person, I don't know. The person, the person that initiated all of this was a lawyer. So, like... I don't yeah. know, like ambulance chasing lawyer, perhaps. I mean, not <laughs> How cool. How the courts stay open with these cases? Like they can't afford to pay their electric bill. Frivolous lawsuits. Yeah, right? it's a... like, honestly, frivolous <laughs> lawsuits like this should be thrown out, and that and that actually the, the the people that bring them should have to pay the charges and the time of the court. Yeah. This is where our taxpayer dollars are going to. So the small claims court people yeah. can sit and listen to this kind of crap. <laughs> Leah, yeah. but it, it's interesting, though, yeah. as Sarah makes a very good point. Like, you, know, you just go up and deal with it and, and, and try to deal with it as an yeah, adult, right? But I mean, do you think, but aren't we like that as a society? Look, this one has gone to the extreme of small claims court. Uh, yeah. But in some cases, people just in a passive aggressive way sometimes are increasingly going to a website or a particular restaurant or, mm-hmm. and then writing negative reviews. Like, oh, I can I, even if I yeah. don't enjoy a meal, I would never go on a thing and on, on a website and just make comments about maybe. The, and yet the, people do this all the time. I've had it happen all to me. Time. I've had it happen to me. No um, way. Somebody went on to my onto um, uh, Google reviews because I manage a, a a Facebook page down here in South Surrey White Rock, and they were upset because of something, and they went and gave me a one star review and dropped down my Google wow. rating, and I reported it to jerk. Google, who has laid off all those employees, and they don't care. So yeah. you know. Meanwhile, the person that we were just talking about is probably going to sue me for defamation. So we, that'll be no, that's what we can talk, talk we all about owe next. Thirty-eight week. bucks. That's right. Well, we didn't <laughs> mention their names. That's all. But but yeah. it is. It seems like as adults, we don't deal with the situation. If someone's had a if you had a bad meal at a restaurant, I always view. Hey, maybe it, it was just poor service today. Somebody yeah. had a bad day. It didn't work out. Whatever it may be. But I've never understood why people need to go on to a restaurant uh, and write a negative review so somehow you can hurt them. Do you know who like, I think I am when I write this? I mean, it just that's yeah. the thing that just really just gets my blood boiling. That's affecting them. And like people that complain in a restaurant and send their food back, are you crazy? You know <laughs> they're going to spit in it and send it back. Like there's just no way. If, if there's if something actually something that's wrong with it, yeah. I'll deal with it. Yeah. If there's something really wrong with it, it's fine. And as long as you're polite, I get it. But I mean, honestly, like I, as I said, I manage this Facebook group down here in South Surrey, White Rock. We've got like almost 35,000 members and people will come on and they will, you know, slag a restaurant. And my whole thing is, you know, it gets taken down unless you have literally the receipts. If you can prove your point just yeah. because you said you had a bad time there. I don't know whether you know the owner and you're trying to destroy the business. I'm not participating in that. So it comes down. We don't I don't yeah. put up with that. kind of stuff. So. You know, I mean, people need to really think about their actions and, and the way it affects others. This kind of it's stuff bad is karma, ridiculous. too. Yeah, bad karma. Well, Leah, bad uh, karma. Leah would not do that. And she especially <laughs> wouldn't do that at the Olive Garden. That's for sure. We, and that, even if that the wine know. is really bad, I ain't complaining. Because okay? <laughs> we're polite Canadians. There you go. Yeah. Leah, <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. <laughs> Have a good Have a weekend, great- guys. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.